Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Pinato. The statistics show that 61, 66.1% of the U.S. population is overweight. 17% of that 66% are obese children, ages 2 through 19. 36.5%, 37.5%, it says there, are obese adults. It's the United States of America. We're uh, leading the world and and, and everything almost. Um, The obesity rates in Europe, in contrast, 51.6% of Europeans are either uh, obese or overweight. 25% of that uh, are obese adults. And about 14% in the European Union are um, obese children. The rest of the world... We mean the rest of the world, we mean Latin America, we mean Africa, we mean um, Asia, um, the developing countries. Notice what their rates of obesity are. 28% um, is the average rate for the rest of the world, 13% being adults and 10% being children. What, is, what does that look like? How, do you, how does that make you guys feel? And, and when you look at those statistics, there's, there's even a range depending on gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. And even education, all that affects the rates of obesity and overweight. Uh, we also looked up the stats in Duval County, Florida. Oh, where's Duval County, Florida? Oh, that's, oh, isn't that here? You know, there's statistics about that right here in Duval County. Do you want to know what the numbers are? Duval County, the rate of overweight and obese is 65.4%. All right, the average in the United States is 66.1%. So we're just under that. We're just under that at 65%. Uh, the rate of obesity for uh, the state of Florida is 63.2. So we're below um, the national average, but we're above our state average here in Duval County. Um, 29% um, are of middle school and high school students in Duval County are overweight and obese. Um, compared to the state average is 28.2, so we lead the state in that as well. Um, and um, uh, the statistics say that more people are dying today because of overeating than undereating. Therefore, in order to build a theology of wellness, we must first take a step back and consider that all forms of illness, physical maladies, viral, bacterial, infectious diseases, oncological diseases, cancer, mental illnesses, lifestyle-related diseases, including obesity and overweight, they have their origin in the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. A fall which corrupted their entire being, their physical, moral, spiritual, and emotional aspects and dimensions. And I believe that there indeed, when we speak about obesity and overweight, there is a physical aspect to it. There is a mental aspect to it. There is an emotional aspect to it. There is a spiritual component to that as well. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to focus on a holistic theology of health in relation to our body, mind, and spirit. We will seek to understand God's original intention for health and life in the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. In future sermons... We will consider how the fall of Adam and Eve affected our health and well-being. And in our final sermon, we will look at how God is seeking to restore us. So open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. Our sermon this morning is entitled, A Theology of Wellness 
Obesity and Overweight, Part 2. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And again, what we're going to try to do this morning is just seek to understand God's original ideal and intention for our wellness and for our health. Holy Scripture draws a portrait of life, vitality, goodness, health, and wholeness as God's ideal for humanity. This ideal encompasses the entirety of man's being, his physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional being. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, the Bible says, And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And I want us to focus on that word there, God saw all. All that he had made, and it was very good. In the Hebrew, the word used there for all is is the Hebrew word kol. All that he had made. Kol, everything. The word all here in this passage, the, the Hebrew word kol, it indicates to us and it speaks to us of wholeness. Wholeness. Uh, there's a store called Whole Foods Market. And there's a reason it's called Whole Foods The word used in this passage here, and God saw all that he had made, the word kol, it indicates to us that wholeness was an intrinsic characteristic of a perfect creation, a perfect ecosystem living in harmony with all its parts. There was perfect balance and harmony. Are you following me here? Wholeness thus becomes a concept taught in Scripture. God is interested not just in your spirit. Listen carefully here. God is interested not just in your spirit. He's interested in the well-being of our bodies. For he did not just create us spiritual beings, but he also created us physical beings with a body. God is not just interested in your spirit. He's interested in the well-being of your body. He's interested in the well-being of your mind. He's interested in the well-being of your emotions. Now, now sometimes we we tend to put down emotions and we always uh, highlight the the mind and being rational. But God did not just create us to be rational beings. He also created us to be emotional beings. And God is interested in the well-being of our emotions, uh, in the well-being of our heart, in the well-being of our relationships. God is interested in the well-being of our entire person and being. Wholeness. Balance and harmony. I remember that when I first surrendered my life to Jesus, I was 15 years old. And my number one value was not wholeness. And it wasn't balance either. And it wasn't harmony. When I was 15 years old and I first surrendered my life to Jesus, my number one value was not wholeness and balance, but my number one value was being right. Being right. I mean, after all, we do worship on the right day, don't we? Right? It's the seventh day Sabbath. That's what the Bible says. We're, we're worshiping on the right day, and everyone else is worshiping on the wrong day. And we can say that, right? We're worshiping on the right day, right? Amen. We're right. Amen. That's why we're here, and everyone else is wrong. My number one priority when I first accepted Jesus as my personal Savior when I was 15 years old was being right. Let me prove to you how right we are and how wrong you are. 
And I was so focused on being right that I was destroying relationships in the process. Hey, hey, what is that? Hey, what are you doing? I'm watching my favorite show. Esmeralda. Oh, come on. You're not watching that. And why not? Uh, because you're a Christian. What would Jesus do? He would want to know if Ricardo's baby was his. Oh, come on. What if today was the last day of the day of probation and your name came up before the recording angel and he sees you watching Esmeralda? Jonathan, he would want to know too. Oh, come on. What if today was the day that Jesus came back to earth, but you missed it because you're watching Esmeralda? Oh, Jonathan, can I just watch my show, please? No, no, you're not watching that. No, I want to watch. No, no, give me that remote. No, give it back. No, get it, no, get it. no, what are you... Oh. Ah. Why are you being such a mean jerk? No, you're the jerk. I'm just going to tell mom. I I don't care because you're wrong and I'm right. Fine, whatever. What you just witnessed there was a reenactment, an interaction that I had with my sister when I was 15 years old. I was right. And in my journey of trying to be right... My relationship with others was wrong. Mm. If I didn't find church engaging, I would pull out my favorite book from Ellen White in the middle of the church service. Can you guess what it is? Selected messages. Selected messages. Why selected messages? Because you can select the messages. (laughs) If the pastor wasn't preaching what I thought he should have been preaching, I would just pull out the book and right there in the pew with my holy, righteous self, just be reading what Ellen White said. If the pastor said something that that wasn't right because Ellen White says it wasn't on one occasion that I would walk out of the sanctuary into the foyer to show my protest. And we would gather in the foyer with right-minded individuals. And we were all vegetarian but we sure did eat up the pastor for our Sabbath lunch. And boy, oh boy, was cannibalism delicious. What good is it if you're right, but your relationships are wrong? How about love being more important than being right? How about respect being more important than being right? And then somewhere in my journey, because God is grace, and we sang about it this morning, save for the grace of God. It could have been me. It should have been me. It would have been me. Save for the grace of God. In my journey, I had given my heart to Jesus. I was sincere. I began to look around, and I started to see the church members whose families were loving and whose families were whole. Oh, there's that word again. Whose families were loving and whose families were whole. And then I started looking at the families in the church who were right. And I started making that comparison in my mind. And, and, and as I was observing them and I would watch them, I would say, you know what? I, I think I want love. I, I, I think I want wholeness. I, I think I want balance. And I noticed that the children from the families who were whole and were loving, I noticed that those children, they loved their parents. And I noticed that the parents loved their children. 
And, and, and I noticed that the children, they loved the church, and the children came to church, and the parents loved the church, and the parents came to church, and the children, when they grew up, they would make good decisions with their lives, and, and, and they would get, uh, make good decisions regarding education and their spouses and their careers. And for the most part, because it doesn't always work out that way, but for the most part. And then I looked at the children of the parents who were right. And I noticed that the children didn't really like the parents, and the parents didn't really like the children, and they were always kind of arguing, and, and, um, and, and, the, and the children didn't like the church, and the parents kind of didn't like the church either. And then, but, but they knew a lot about the Bible. But man, were they meaner than the devil. And I noticed that those children and those families, they got into all kinds of bad relationships, and they made terrible decisions with their, with their life. And then... And then In the beginning, God saw everything that he had made. There's that concept, coal, all, everything, wholeness and balance and harmony. God is interested not just in your spirit. God is interested in the well-being of our physical, our mental, our emotional, our relational components. Everything, every aspect of life should come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of our life should come under the grace of God. Every aspect of our life should come under the redemption of God. And God saw all, the Bible passage says, all, everything that he had made, and it was very good. And so somewhere along my Christian experience, I thank Jesus, but I began to value wholeness and balance. But when we read here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that was God's intention all along since the very beginning. The earth, as originally created by God, was a paradise, a place of pure perfection. And and go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. It says, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Some translations say, and behold, it was very good. In the Hebrew phrase used here to describe the perfection of Genesis 1, verse 31, it says, Vehine tov me'oth, literally, behold, good, very exceeding. Accompanied with the Hebrew noun me'oth, right there that you see it, it intensifies and it strengthens in meaning. It, exten- it, it, it strengthens good. Me'oth strengthens good, and it says, very exceedingly good. Not just regular good, very exceedingly, out of this world, incredibly good. In addition to this, that particle vehine that you see there translated as, as behold, it interrupts the reader, and it calls attention to the goodness itself. Behold, look, look upon that which is very good. Look upon that which is very exceedingly good. Are you following me here? And have you ever seen something that's just amazing, that just grabs your attention, and you can't stop looking at it? That, that, that's what this passage is trying to say. Behold, look at it, stop everything else that you're doing, and look at the goodness, look at the greatness of what God is doing here, what God has done here. In the Greek, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is consistent um, with this translation in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it translates this word as, of tov, which is good. It translates it as kala. In the Hebrew, idu kala lion. 
Kalos or kalos, which is good, is that which is fine. Kalos is that which is beautiful. Kalos is something that is good and something that is useful at a high level. The Greek word used here to describe good, it refers to moral goodness as well. Its usage in classical Greek, it conveys the idea of that which is organically healthy and fit and useful. It's interesting, that word, organically, in contrast to artificial. The word kalos in the Greek conveys that which is organically healthy and fit and useful. It is that which is beautiful. It is a state of total soundness. It is a state of wholeness and order in both internal and external. Kalos, and listen here carefully, kalos in the classical Greek mind, it belongs to the realm of the divine. And it is that which connects us to the divine. Kalos, good. Returning to the Hebrew here, tov is the Hebrew word translated as good here. The Hebrew word tov, it means all that is good and good in all respects. Uh, the, the range of tov includes qualitative goodness, quality, qualitative goodness, moral goodness, spiritual goodness, aesthetic goodness, and external goodness. Tov is that which is beautiful, pleasant, desirable, kind, and valuable. Tov is used seven times in Genesis chapter 1. Do you know where those seven times are? Have your Bibles? It's not a rhetorical question. Look it up. Tov is used seven times in Genesis chapter 1. Can you find what those seven uses are? Oh, I heard it over here. The light. The light is described as good. What else? Yes, the earth, the dry land. That's right. The dry land. Anything else? The seas, that's right. And anything else? Yes, yes, the, the animal life, that's right. Anything else? Yes, the plants, that's number five. We have two more. Yes, the sea, uh, sorry, the sun, the moon, the stars, that's right. Anything else? It mentions the precious metals and the stones, plant and animal life. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 23, and Genesis chapter 2 and verse 12. Genesis chapter 2, verse 12. Interesting that the word good is used seven times. Hmm. There's probably no better description, and, and I just keep emphasizing about the goodness and, and what goodness is and what the Hebrew word tov represents and the Greek word kalos represents so that you can get the aspect of what God's original creation and God's original paradise was. And what I want to do something is that there's this, there's this poem. There's this poem that I want to show you right now. It is a, a poem called The Creation by James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson was born and raised here in Jacksonville, Florida. And just what a, what a treasure, what a literary treasure he left for us. Uh, Jim, can we, can we dim, the, can dim the lights here? And just, I want you to just watch and listen to just God's goodness described in this poem, The Creation. God stepped out on space. And he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. And as far as the eye of God could see, darkness covered everything. Blacker than a hundred midnights down in a cypress swamp. Then God smiled and the light broke and the darkness rolled up on one side. 
and the light stood shining on the other and God said that's good then God reached out and took the light in his hands and God rolled the light around in his hands until he made the sun and he set that sun ablazing in the heavens and the light that was left from making the sun God gathered it up in a shining ball and flung it against the darkness, spangling the night with the moon and stars. Then down between the darkness and the light, he hurled the world and God said, that's good. And God himself stepped down and the sun was on his right hand and the moon was on his left. The stars were clustered about his head and the earth was under his feet and God walked and where he trod his footsteps hollowed the valleys out and bulged the mountains up. And then he stopped and looked and saw that the earth was hot and barren. So God stepped over to the edge of the world and he spat out the seven seas. He batted his eyes and the lightnings flashed. He clapped his hands and the thunders rolled. And the waters above the earth came down. The cooling waters came down. Then the green grass sprouted and the little red flowers blossomed the pine tree pointed his finger to the sky and the oak spread out his arms the lakes cuddled down in the hollows of the ground and the rivers ran down to the sea and God smiled again and the rainbow appeared and curled itself around his shoulder then God raised his arm and he waved his hand over the sea and over the land and he said, bring forth, bring forth and quicker than God could drop his hand, fishes and fowls and beasts and birds swam, the rivers and the seas roamed the forest and the woods and split the air with their wings and God said, that's good. Then God walked around and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked at his sun. He looked at his moon. And he looked at his little stars. He looked on his world with all its living things. And God said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river, he sat down with his head in his hands. God thought, I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay. And by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down. And there the great God Almighty, who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay till he shaped it in his own image. Then into it he blew the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. 
Can you see God's beauty in creation? His original intent. So far, our our key words in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 have been wholeness and have been goodness. And the sermon is not over yet. There's one more word. There's one more key word that we want to look at this morning, and that is life. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Life. Life is such an amazing, incredible gift. We probably don't know the value of life until you've experienced its loss. And God created this world. He created this world so that there could be life. A a central motivating factor behind God's creative work on this earth is life. In in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18, it, it says it. It says that God, he created the earth to be inhabited. And as God is fashioning this, this, plan, this planet to sustain life, as he infuses the immaterial and the material world with light and with energy, and once there is an environment that can sustain life, once there is an atmosphere and there is warmth and there is water and there is light and there is vegetation, then he creates life. Animal life first, and then human life second. And the creation of human life is so important that it's referred to twice in the creation account. The first one in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, the focus is humanity's creation as the bearers of God's image. Yes, male and female as the bearers of God's image. But then the second time that God describes the creation of humanity, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the focus is slightly different. The focus is no longer humanity as the bearers of God's image, of God's image, but the focus now is life. And the Hebrew there, ha. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Let's read it there. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Here, the the Hebrew words, it it says he breathed into his his nostrils the breath of of life. There, the the, the Hebrew word there is is the the nefach. The nephah, which is related to here, he breathed nephah into his nostrils. The breath, it says, nishmat of life, chayim. The nephah into the nishmat and the chayim, the life. And man becomes, as it says here, a nefesh chaya, a living being. The focus here is on breath and it is on life and on living. The focus of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 is life. Do you see it there? That's the main point, is life. And, and here scripture begins to build and develop what Albert Schweitzer, the German theologian, what he calls an affirmation of life or a reverence for life. Why should we reverence life? We reverence life because of the source from which life originates. And that source is God. It is his breath. It is his life that comes into our being. It is God's breath, his holy, sacred breath that runs through every living being. 
A reverence for life which encompasses more than just human life. It is a reverence for life which extends to all life on this planet, including animal life. Now, I shared a little bit about my journey last week about becoming a vegetarian. And while my reasons for becoming a vegetarian back when I was 15 was slightly different back then than what they are today, my reasons back then was because, you know what Ellen White says, right? Mm -hmm. Not get to heaven. No meat eaters. Get to heaven. All right? And pastors. Have you read what she says about pastors eating meat? Can't be trusted. So you know you can trust me because I'm a vegetarian. I'm just winking here. I'm just making a joke. All right. One of the main reasons for me today to continue to be a vegetarian has shifted, and it is reverence and respect for animal life. And Ellen White says as Did you know that Ellen White, it took Ellen White 33 years to become a vegetarian? She had her, her first vision of health in 1863. And it wasn't until 1896 that she herself fully became a vegetarian. And the reason she identifies for becoming vegetarian was was not because of her health, but it was because of mercy and animal compassion, a reverence for life. And you have the quote up there. We'll read it together. When the selfishness of taking the lives of animals to gratify a perverted appetite was presented to me by who? What? What? By a Catholic woman? What do they know? They don't know anything. (laughs) Was presented to me by a Catholic woman kneeling at my feet. The next slide. Kneeling at my feet, I felt ashamed and distressed, and I saw it in a new light. And I said, I will no longer patronize the butchers. I will not have the flesh of corpses on my table. Yes, we can learn from other faiths. Someone's put it this way here in the Adventist Review. They said, our culture mourns the loss of Cecil the lion. You remember Cecil the lion? And that mean dentist, you know, that, that, that barbaric dentist from Minnesota. Where was he? Minnesota, Wisconsin. And he goes on this, on this hunting trip to Africa. And he takes down poor little Cecil the lion. And the article continues, but yet we consume Bessie the cow millions of times a day. Is Cecil more important than Bessie? Finally, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, if, if we'll read it there, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, here life and, and goodness come together. In this passage, the Bible says, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Do you have it there? Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good. There's that, there's that word again, tov, good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there, there was the tree of life. Here we have goodness and, and life together. And there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, both life and good come together in close relationship to each other. And the syntactical placement of life in the center of this passage, and also the spatial locus of the tree of life. Where was the tree of life? In the center of the garden. This indicates to us the centrality and the prominence in the biblical text regarding life and the sacredness of life. Life, my friends, is one of the highest good. 
According to this biblical passage of Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, humanity was to pursue every good tree and every good fruit, including the tree of life, all while avoiding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, eating from the good trees will bring life. Eating from the forbidden tree brings evil and death. And as we're speaking about obesity and overweight... Could it be possible that our lifestyle and our choices in eating can become either a source of life, health, and goodness, or it can become a source of evil, illness, and death? In this passage, we also have the first very introduction of something that is not good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we have the word evil, and we have the word good right next to each other. A tree that has both good knowledge and evil knowledge. You see, evil in the Hebrew raw, evil is the opposite and the antithesis of good and of life. Evil is that which is harmful to humanity. Evil is that which destroys humanity. Evil is that which is of little worth. It is injurious. It is not beneficial. It is pernicious. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 15, it links evil with illness and with sickness. You see, evil leads to death. And death is the opposite and and antithesis of life. And the formula in the creation account is simple. Good leads to life. Evil leads to death. This concept of goodness in life is further illustrated through the imagery of trees. Uh, Trees in Scripture are symbols of life and they're symbols of wisdom. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree. Like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Proverbs 3, verse 18, the Bible says, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who will take hold of her, and those who hold her fast will be blessed. This motif of trees also reappears in the Old Testament sanctuary, where the menorah is a stylized tree with branches and almond-shaped flowers and buds and blossoms, whose light represents God's sustaining life. And so this has been a theology of wellness. Have we seen a glimpse of paradise? Have we seen a glimpse of of God's original intention in creating everything, all, everything holistic and, and balance and harmony, everything exceedingly good? He filled the earth with goodness, with wholeness, and with life. But then here in this passage of Genesis 2, 9, we begin to see glimpses of its undoing, and that is evil. In our next sermon together, we will explore more more closely the effects of evil upon Adam and Eve and its role in our world today with regards to sickness and disease and obesity and overweight. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with us on www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.